Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to It's Not a Crisis. I am your host, Doran Wallach. I'm an entrepreneur, a mother of two, a wife, and a 40-something trying to figure out what is happening in this decade. Why is no one talking about it? I created this podcast to help women in their late 30s and 40s to figure out what is going on in our mind, body, soul, and life. We may laugh, we may cry, we may get frustrated, but most importantly, my goal is to make this next chapter of life positive. I'm also full of my own questions and I'm here to go on this journey with you. So let's do it together. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode and another week. I'm so happy to have you join me today. Today's topic is really, really interesting. And it sparked my interest because I was listening to a podcast right after the pandemic on 10% Happier, which is an amazing podcast and wonderful meditation app. I don't say that about meditation apps. I I really dislike meditating, uh, but 10% gets to the point gives you advice. It's it's wonderful. I really like it. And uh, Dan Harris on 10% was interviewing a gentleman by the name of David Kessler. And David Kessler is a grief expert. And David was speaking about grief in terms of how our lives were before the pandemic and what we were grieving and what we were going through in this time of our life. And it was it really spoke to me. It was so fascinating because I think I just always thought of grief as losing somebody. And so that got me to thinking about our lives and our age and what grief means to us. So I did my research and I found Lisa Williams of What's Your Grief? We're going to talk today about all kinds of grief. And I think this is very important as our lives go forward because we are grieving our pasts or what could have been. We're grieving the future. We're grieving our parents aging. We're grieving our kids getting older. And we're experiencing death within our friend groups with either their parents or in my three years of being in my 40s. Unfortunately, I've had uh, a friend lose a husband suddenly. I've had a friend lose a child. I've had friends um, who have friends that have passed away from cancer. There's so much to this topic and there's so much to uncover, but I really hope that we will touch on as much as we can. And I'm very excited about Lisa coming on. But today we're going to piece it all together and uh, talk a little bit about this. And uh, hopefully if it's a show that you enjoy, we can also have a follow up with Lisa, maybe in an Instagram or a Facebook live. Lisa Williams is a co-founder of the grief community, What's Your Grief? Lisa has worked in the field of grief and loss for 12 years before founding What's Your Grief? In that time, Lisa supported patients and families in the hospital at end of life in circumstances of unexpected death and provided ongoing grief and bereavement support. Feeling frustrated with the online and print materials that were available for grievers, she co-founded What's Your Grief? as a resource offering concrete, practical, creative, down-to-earth, 
and relatable grief support. What's Your Grief offers in-person support, including workshops, trainings, and support groups, online support, including hundreds of articles on all topics around grief and loss, a weekly podcast, and online courses. She has been interviewed as a grief expert for NPR, Washington Post, U.S. News, The New York Times, Huffington Post, and the BBC. And I am very excited to welcome Lisa to the show today and very honored that she chose to come on. It's not a crisis. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is going to be a great episode. I, I was joking with a friend the other day that some of my episodes are just kind of um, people listening in on therapy sessions. <laughs> but I don't want to make that about it's not about me. I do have things to add, um, but but it's 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 so therapeutic for me as well because I'm learning along with everybody else. So um, this topic uh, I think is so relevant to women in their late 30s and 40s, and um, I, I I think I just want to start with the simple question of what is grief? How do you define grief? Sure. So it's really interesting. I think even though we think of grief as this huge, big, overwhelming thing, the definition that I use is really simple, which is that just that grief is our normal and natural response to loss. And that is any kind of loss. So it's actually a really straightforward definition. I think that the trick is that that response, that word, our response to loss or our reaction to loss, that can comprise so many different things. There's all of the mess of grief kind of lives within that. But really, the key is that it's a natural process. It's this normal thing that happens to us when we lose a person or we lose something that's important to us, something else in our lives. So it's pretty straightforward and pretty complicated all at once. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And and you just mentioned normal grief. What What is normal grief? I think this is probably one of the trickiest questions for people because I think people, we, we are always on this quest for like, what is normal? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? Am I going crazy? Am I losing my mind? Um, and every single in- day, every <laughs> single day that goes through my head. <laughs> same, same. Um, and so I think that there has always been this want to determine what normal grief is all about. And I think when we look back to the earliest the models of how we understood grief and defined grief, we go back to like the 60s and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the five stages of grief and all of those ideas where we wanted a nice, neat little formula to say, okay, here's what grief is going to look like. We're going to go through these nice, neat, tidy little stages. We're going to get to acceptance. We're going to put it behind us and move on. And, and people for a long time really clung to that. And I think in a lot of ways, society still thinks that normal grief must be that. It must be going through these five stages and finally getting to a point of closure or acceptance or you know moving on. And that that's what grief is going to look like. Often we think grief is all about sadness. Maybe we throw in a little bit of anger. But for the most part, I think that's what society still thinks of as grief. What we in mental health think of as normal grief is very, very different than that. We've come a long way from those days of stage models and task models and really recognize that grief looks very, very, very different for everyone. And it's not just one particular set of emotional responses. It is thoughts and feelings and behaviors. And it is like all of the very mixed up things that happen after we lose someone or something. And then we try to reconstruct our world after that person or that thing has disappeared. And so grief is really that 
process of reconstruction that is in many ways ongoing forever. And so normal, when we talk about normal grief, there's no easy way to say what it's going to look like because each person and their background and their coping skills and their own resilience and their own support system and what loss they've suffered looks so different that the way that we reconstruct, the way we keep our connections to people who have died, the way that we build a life after a you know, difficult or traumatic event that's happened, it looks really, really different. So I wish they could say there's like an easy answer to what is normal grief. But I think that the biggest takeaway that we have is that there's no timeline for it. It is something that is an ongoing process that really is about how we integrate our loss into our lives moving forward. So that's kind of the, the slightly complicated answer. And I think it's the one that people don't like because they're like, no, go through the checklist and tell me what's normal. Um, but unfortunately, we, we, can't, we can't really do that. We can say a little bit about when maybe you need extra support or when it's getting to a point where it's so problematic that it's interfering with your day-to-day -day life. So it's almost easier to say what's outside of, of normal than what's normal. That is very complicated. And I think that when we were speaking uh, prior to this, you had mentioned to me grief can even be good change in life. And I thought that was so interesting because I, I don't think I ever personally had a word to cover those feelings related to positive things happening in life, which were kind of conditioned to be grateful and happy and, you know, and these big transitions, whether it's having a baby or getting married or all these other things. And sometimes we don't feel so happy about it. Sometimes the, just the change in general causes us to feel, I guess, in a way that we're we're grieving what was before that. Or uh, Ned, can you go a little bit more into that? Yeah, absolutely. So Ken Doka is this famous grief researcher, and he's really the first person that kind of articulated this really simple idea that change anytime we have change, even when it's positive change, there are things that we lose in order for us to, to move forward with change. And anytime we have loss, we have grief. And so when we think about those things that you just described, those positive changes in life, in order for us to make space for those new things, we often have to say goodbye to certain other things, right? When we get married, it's this wonderful, you know, experience and everybody's focusing on how great it is that you're getting married, but you're leaving behind this world and life of being a person who was single, maybe who had a different kind of independence or way of thinking about their life planning that now we're taking other people into account all the time. And there are things that we let go of that we have to acknowledge and say, like, as much as we love this new thing that's happening, we also need to give ourselves the time and space to grieve what we're leaving behind. And I think that that happens when people have kids, when we graduate from college and, you know, are looking forward and everybody is ex kind of excited about next steps, but leaving behind the things before all these different moments in life, I think it, creating a space where we acknowledge both is so important, but it's often not what we do. Oftentimes we think, okay, this is a, this is all about the good experience. This is all about the exciting thing that's happening. And we don't create a space to normalize and talk about and acknowledge like 
we can feel two things at once. We can feel really happy and thrilled and excited and wonderful. And we can also be really sad and struggling with some of the things that we had to let go of in order to create a space for these new things. And I also think we're of this generation of guilt. We have been given opportunities and whatever those opportunities are, we need to be grateful for them. And I think that brings inner anxiety and sadness to so many women because we can't admit that while we have X, Y, and Z, we may miss everything else. I have friends who, including myself, very happily married for many years. And, you know, once you have kids and everybody sucks the life out of you, <laughs> you, you there are there are moments that we grieve our lives when we would just come home. Uh, you know, personally, I would come home and watch Sex in the City and eat pasta and have some red wine and talk to nobody. <laughs> you know, those, those, those days, I miss those a little bit. But I think women are afraid to admit that they had those moments or they have those moments. And I think it continues through your life. I think this is, this is something that we just need to learn to embrace. Oh, absolutely. And I think acknowledge, right, that there are so many lives worth living and we have the life that we're living right now, but there's always those moments where we think, you know, I, I love many things about this life, but there's this alternate life or this life that used to exist for me. And, and that life was amazing and wonderful and valuable too, or, or could have been amazing and wonderful and valuable. And I think that sometimes we really struggle with that because we think, wow, if I spend time acknowledging that or talking about that, it seems like I'm not grateful for what I have right now. When that's not the truth, we can wholly feel, I, I feel like sometimes it's like my mantra to people of like, we can wholly feel two feelings at the same time. Being able to feel a sense of loss about something doesn't mean we're not feeling a deep gratitude about the thing that we have, we can feel both of those things simultaneously. And it's important that we acknowledge that and that we give it space. I love that. And I'd love to touch on something that's very relevant right now. I try to not bring too much of the pandemic into my podcast because I, I hope that these will you know, go on for a very long time. People will be able to always listen. However, the pandemic is changing our lives. And the reason I, I that podcast spoke to me was it was talking about that we were all grieving what was before the pandemic. And like everybody, I have my days where I'm like, wow, you know what? I, I've learned something so positive out of this. Like, I, I, you know, I'm taking it easier on my kids and I'm taking more time for me and I've, I'm rethinking my career. And, you know, there are all these positive things that have come out of it. And then I have the other days where I'm like, this sucks. The uncertainty and 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 things that we've had to miss and places we can't go and friends that we can't see and just that, that feeling of anxiety of not being able to do anything without feeling a little anxious right now and missing so much. And at the same time, it's weird. I don't really want to go back to some of those things. <laughs> what have you seen from grieving as far as COVID goes? Sure. I mean, there's so much within this because I feel like I, when I look at what people are are coping with and feeling about these losses and that feeling of looking back at the world before the pandemic. I think there is exactly what you described, like this feeling of longing for that, that yearning to go back to my like comfortable, predictable life that existed before the pandemic, where I knew what school looked like for the kids. I knew what my job looked like. I felt all of those kind of comfortable things that were, were easy. 
And then also feeling like, well, no, but there's great things that have happened as well. So I think there, there's a lot of people who are feeling a combination. I think where we are right now in the stage of time that's interesting is I think many people have accepted it's never going to go back to exactly what it looked like before. And so I think that's causing this like new round of feelings for all of those people who are like, I'm just going to wait this out, right? I'm just going to like wait it out and then it's going to go back to normal. And now people are facing this idea of like, okay, it's not going to go back to normal, at least maybe not anytime soon, which is both anxiety inducing. And at the same time, like it creates this amazing new space to say, okay, now I really get to define what I want it to look like going forward. I'm not just waiting it out anymore. I can kind of create some new balance. So I think that that in many ways is hard, but can be for people really empowering to say, I'm going to just start to actively redefine what I want it to look like going forward. The biggest thing that I think, and is one of the reasons I'm really glad that you wanted to talk about this topic, I think one of the things that we're seeing from so many people is there's this awareness that right now during COVID, there are people with worse losses, right? There are people who experience the death of a loved one, the deaths of multiple loved ones, have lost jobs, have had multiple family members lose jobs. And so oftentimes, I think we're seeing people who are talking around how much they're struggling, but wanting, back to your point about gratitude, wanting to be like, I can't say that out loud because I should be focusing on all the things that I am grateful that I do have and that I haven't gone through, you know, maybe losses that are as bad as someone else's losses. And one of the things that we always like to remind people is that tendency to compare. We do that in life in so many different ways. But if we're talking about grief, if we're talking about loss at any moment, we're always going to be able to find someone who has lost more than that we have lost, who's gone through something harder than we have gone through. But that doesn't invalidate what we are going through. We can both, again, feel grateful for what we have in this moment, while also creating that space to say, these are real and significant losses. If I didn't get to see my child graduate from high school the way I thought that I always would, kind of walking across the stage in the traditional way, that's a real loss. And it might not be the same severity as some of these greater losses that we're hearing about, but I still need to give myself space to acknowledge the the reality of that. And David Kessler, who you know you you listen to and you referenced one thing about him that I love that he says often is he says, you know, over my many years of working in the field of grief, people will often say to me, what type of grief is the worst grief? You know, what type of loss is the worst loss? Is it losing a child? Is it, you know, what is it? And that David Kessler always says, your loss is the worst loss. And I, you know, I love that because when we're going through something in a moment, like that's what we're going through. And we need to be able to kind of create a, a space to be able to acknowledge it while still having that gratitude at the same time. And I think that's very, again, speaking to our generation, I think we are this generation that is supposed to commonly say, oh, but, I, but I'm but i so lucky. But I think we were raised like that. I think a, a lot of us, I'm not saying everybody, but I have to tell you something in relation to what you just said. Two things. Many years ago uh, in New York City, there was Hurricane Sandy, which devastated a lot of Manhattan. And uh, we live in a, um, a townhouse right near the river. But when I was an interior designer, I'd spent 
two years renovating and gutting this house. And um, about four weeks after I finally finished, Sandy came and dumped about almost five feet of water in our house and going down our stairwell like a waterfall. All of our furniture um, was underwater. I was so scared. I didn't have a lot of empathy from people after that. And I think they were like, oh, well, you know, we're very fortunate financially. So, you know, we were able to build it back, but it was a lot of money that we didn't have. And it was not just money. It was that my home was destroyed, the place where my kids were playing the day before. And my life, I know I I was bouncing around from place to place for seven weeks trying to find somewhere to live. and, And our lives were just in such upheaval. And it was a really traumatic time in my life. I even remember the day after I went out to um, Long Island where they had it worse than we did. And I volunteered and I started like getting into this huge, I mean, looking back now and I started getting into this huge project and helping everybody out there because I felt like, oh, they are so much worse off than I am. Like I need to go help them. And, and, and it's sad to me when I look back that I wasn't able to just go through my own grief of what I had lost and what I had in trauma of what I experienced. And part of that was my own fault. You know, part of that was me feeling otherwise, you know, I, I should be grateful. Look at these people there. They have, you know, nothing and their homes are, are destroyed and they're burned down or whatever. And I think that, you know, it's really interesting when we talk about in grief and loss, when we talk about the word avoidance, I think a lot of times people think avoidance is about, you know, drinking or like sleeping too much or zoning out and watching Netflix for, you know, hours and hours or avoidance of difficult things we're going through. I think we think that it's going to be like some sort of obvious negative coping. But the reality is oftentimes when people go through things that are really, really difficult, one of the ways that people will avoid is by externalizing and focusing on helping other people. And so we like with death-related losses, a lot of times we'll see if somebody loses a partner, suddenly all of their emphasis becomes about how their kids are doing. And so rather than tending to their own grief, they start just like completely focusing on their kids or within just weeks of a death, they'll become incredibly involved with volunteer work, uh, maybe around like the disease that the person died of or something like that. And in many ways, other people externally are like rewarding you for that. They're like, oh my God, great job. You're going out there helping, you know, you're helping these other people who've lost everything. You're so strong. You're so strong. You're doing all this great stuff. You've had this flood in your house and yet you're still out there. So you're getting all this like amazing positive reinforcement from other people. And oftentimes it is helpful on some level, right? For yourself, it is keeping busy. It is sometimes giving you perspective. Like it's not to, to devalue it just because there's pieces of it that are avoidance. But oftentimes what is going on is that like it's avoidance. It's like, okay, if I throw myself into this, then it will allow me to take myself away from my own pain and my own reality of what I'm trying, you know, trying to deal with and the feelings that maybe I really need to feel and spend time with. And so we always really encourage people if they're having that inclination immediately after something devastating has happened to completely start focusing on helping others. Like we don't want to say don't help others. That sounds terrible, right? But we do want to say like make sure you're taking a step back and creating space for your own 
loss and your own feelings and your own potential trauma or your own, you know, the depths of your own grief, because that's important. It's important that you spend that time with that um, because that's going to be what helps you integrate and be able to kind of pick that up and move forward with it as, as you go down the road. And I think as women, we need to be supportive of our friends going through those things. And we need to say to them, you don't have to do this right now. You know, you should focus on yourself. You should focus on your loss and all this other stuff can come later. I think it's up to us. I, th I think it's very hard for women to make that move or that decision on their own. I think we need permission sometimes. Oh, I completely agree. And that idea of like, you're being so strong, you're being this, you're being that, like being careful of our own language. When we ask women, it's often women who respond to us. It's not all women. But when we ask people about things that other people said that sort of helped them or hurt them when they were going through difficult times, many people will say other people thinking they were being supportive by by saying like, you're being so strong, you're being so brave, you're doing all these things, you know, that those things actually really were difficult for them because it made them feel like they had, they couldn't break down or they couldn't take a break from what they were doing. They had to just like keep putting on that face. When the reality I think is like, when I look at my friends, the friends who have been through things that are difficult and devastating and who have been able to say like, I'm tapping out for a while. I, I have to take a break from work, volunteering, stuff with my kids, school, you know, all of that. Like I need to just take time and space for my grief. I'm like, good for you are the strong one. Like to do that, to be a woman who's in a place to be able to say, I know when I need to tap out. That's I think really impressive and really difficult for most women. I have a friend who um, lost a child a couple of years ago. And I don't think any of us can ever fathom going through that or understanding that experience. But maybe a year after, she was telling me the story about how she was in a um, a school. I don't know if it was like a, a group or a PTA or something that somebody asked her to join. And they were all sitting around the table and um, talking about whatever subject they were talking about that completely felt trivial to her at this time of her life, which understandably so. And she's like, she's told me that she's like, I just stood up and I looked around the room and I was like, I'm leaving. I have no interest in this. I'm done. And she just walked out. And I was like, good for you. I mean, clearly her perspective on life has changed drastically, but, but it also, it was such a, I was so proud of her because it was a moment where, you know, she realized that like, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do this. This is not what I need in my life right now. This, I don't believe in this and I'm out of here. Absolutely. I, I love that. And I think a lot of people, when they reflect on like going through a loss, going through some sort of devastating life event. And when you, when you, you ask people about more like meaning or growth or things that have come from it, not that you need to find meaning and growth out of your loss. I'd like to be very clear, but if you do find people who've who find that and have those moments, many times they're like, it helped me to prioritize many things in my life. It allowed me to see which relationships and friendships were the most meaningful. And it allowed me to see where I really wanted to spend my time and where I didn't want to spend my time. And it allowed me to kind of reassess my life through this new lens and that that's really valuable. And so oftentimes when we talk about post-traumatic growth, what happens is people will say, I have fewer friendships than I had before, but they are far more meaningful friendships than 
the friendships I had before. Maybe I'm involved in far fewer activities and volunteer work and like different things than I was before, but I'm so much more invested and committed in the things that I do now because this event helped me to really prioritize my life in a way that I wasn't doing before the loss happened. I'm feeling that way about COVID, honestly, about friendships and relationships. I have really been reevaluating my career in this whole thing. And I, I, I don't know if you know, but I'm a, I'm a fine jewelry designer by day. I've been doing that for seven years. And uh, before the pandemic, it was something that I was kind of unsure about. I, I knew I loved doing it, but but I felt like it was it took a lot of my time and energy. It, it costs a lot of money to keep the business going. And I really was thinking about slowing it down, but very torn because my jewelry does have a reputation and, and I have clients. So how can I make a choice for myself that is not thinking about these other people? And then COVID happened and it took me a while um, until recently. And, and, and I fortunately started this podcast during this time too, which I'm so passionate about and I love doing so much. And I've decided now to, to restructure my business and change it uh, despite consultants and despite people telling me, well, but you, you know, you have this, you have that, da, 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 da. I finally come to acceptance with it, but there is this, this grief or of, of, oh gosh, you know, I, I'm, not where I was a, a few years ago with even just the way I felt about it and how will my life change because of this? And am I making the right decision? I guess grieving my former career, if that makes any sense. And I think there are a lot of things like that similar to that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, our careers for so many of us, our identity is wrapped up in many ways in our careers. So we say our career, and I think it sounds oftentimes like this thing that's external to ourselves. But many times we start to deeply identify with that career. And we have this very specific idea in mind, especially if you, you know, have a business and your career, you know, is connected with that of this is what this is going to look like. This is what I want to achieve. This is something that I imagine probably when you first started in it, we're really excited and passionate about and had a long-term vision for. And it's really difficult when that suddenly starts to shift because suddenly it feels like, oh, but this was how it was supposed to be. This was the, you know, this was what I imagined. This was, these were all the markers of if it had kind of been, been successful in the way I wanted it to be, I would still be passionate. I'd still be excited. I would still be all of these things. And so letting go of that is it's work, you know, I mean, it really is. It's saying, okay, now I have to start to acknowledge that there are things about this that are important for me to lose because I want to create space for other things that have, that for me now carry the value and the weight and the passion and the excitement. And that might mean shifting the business and doing things differently. But values work is something that we talk about in mental health a lot, which is like really sitting down and drilling into like, what are my values? What are the values that are most important to me? And how are they corresponding with my time? Like if I look literally like minute by minute in my day and I connect it back to my values, how much of my time is being spent on the things that I'm most excited and passionate about. And we know that people who have the highest sense of well-being usually have the greatest 
connection between their time and their values. And people who are often struggling with a feeling of well-being or meaning or purpose or connection are often people whose time in their day isn't really connecting to the things that are their, their highest values. And because values change, that means sometimes we set up a life where all our time is connected to one set of values. And then when the values change, we have to reconstruct our lives to, to match those new values. I love that. I mean, that advice is going to go a long way for so many women. One of the things that you had mentioned before, and I wanted to talk about because I think there are a lot of women that are feeling this, two subjects. One is is our parents. So, um, you know, my, my parents, I have step-parents. Um, they range from 73 to 85, my father-in-law. It's not easy seeing them age right now. And I think seeing them sometimes need us a little bit more while we still need them. Personally, uh, I grieve that in the years where my parents maybe were feeling a little bit better, had a little bit more energy, that's when I had little kids and I was focused on them. And I, you know, I didn't take the time to really appreciate uh, those times with my parents. And now that they're getting older, it's it's scary. You're, you know, it, you're grieving them even when they're still here because it's sad and it's scary to see them changing and the fear of what is going to be in the future. Is this something you commonly hear from women? Absolutely. I think we hear this and there's sort of the extreme, the most extreme versions of this, which we actually, there's like a label for in the grief world, which is ambiguous loss, which they talk about as grieving someone who is still alive. And there's kind of degrees in which that happens. But I think what you're talking about, even in the earliest even in the earliest stages of like really being aware of our parents aging and starting to see that and feel the way it's affecting how we spend time together, what maybe they have the ability to do um, in terms of maybe traveling or even just going for a walk or a hike or, you know, what they have the energy for. When we start to see those things, like we had described, like grief is a reaction to a loss. And that's something that we're losing, right? We're watching them lose maybe a little bit of their energy or their health or their independence. And we're losing our ability to interact with them in those ways that were maybe the really comfortable ways that we loved and enjoyed spending time with them. And now it's having to evolve into something new and something different. And that I think loss can feel really profound because when we look at our lives with our parents, I think one thing oftentimes when we talk to people who've lost parents, especially who've lost both of their parents, they'll often say, you know, one thing that people minimize is losing your parents because people think, well, you, you know, your parents are supposed to die before you, you know, your parents are going to die, you know, they're older, you know, you should have anticipated that. And what people will often say is the world seems to underestimate that I've lived 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of my life and never not had my parents there. Like they've always been there. And so when we start to feel it changing, then we start to then really confront that reality of like, oh, this we're feeling this change. We're having to change the way we spend time with them. And we become more and more aware of, of their mortality and that they're not going to be here forever. And we start to feel the weight of that. And so I think it's really 
it's really tricky and there's no easy answers to it. But one thing that we really encourage people to do and that a lot of the research shows is really valuable is if, if we get stuck on what we've lost or the time wishing, the, like we said, those regrets of, I wish I'd spent more time with them, you know, eight years ago when they still had more ability to travel or ability to whatever else it might be. If I get stuck on that, then I don't spend the time kind of reinventing what the present looks like and saying, okay, you know, we're not going to do the same things that we were doing eight, 10, 15 years ago together. But like, what are we going to do now? How do we really take advantage of this moment and realize that it might look completely different than the past? And that's okay. It's going to be kind of a new way of having a relationship and that it will keep evolving as they age. So the more that we can do to stay in the present with it and not get too lost in the regrets of what we wish we had done, you know, five years ago with them or our fears about what things are going to look like in, in five years from now, that's what's going to help us to really take advantage of the time that we have and be creative with it. I, I think that relates also to the other topic I was going to bring up, which is your children getting older. All of a sudden, my daughter's 13, and I'm like, what just happened? How did this, how did this happen? And I see <laughs> right. her, you know, pulling away from me and as she should, she's a teenager and, you know, wanting her own independence. And I, I, you know how when your kids are little and everyone's like, take advantage of it, suck it up. (laughs) Like it's just, just enjoy every bad moment. And your kids like in the supermarket, hysterically crying on the floor, throwing things. And you're like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Absolutely not. I am just going to want, wish this moment to end. (laughs) Right. And I understand now those moms saying that, however, I would never do that to another woman in that, in that moment. Um, I, I understand it. It's very hard to understand that when you're in that moment, but it does sneak up on you so quickly. And I, and I hate to sound like that woman who says that, but it does. And I think with what you just said about our parents, I I really try to say, okay, you know what? You didn't love the toddler stage. That was like, they were cute and everything, but that was not my favorite stage. And I actually enjoy spending time with my teenage daughter now, whether she wants to be with me or not. And my son, who's 10 years old, I'm liking this age a lot more. So I try to look at it in that way instead of being like, oh my gosh, she's going to be out of the house in a few years. And then I try to say, what's that going to look like for me? What, you know, maybe that maybe my life begins in a different way at that point. So that's how I cope with it. I don't know if that would be your advice, but I think a lot of women are feeling this now with their kids getting older and them needing them less and us all of a sudden having to think about ourselves and like, who are we? What are we? This is depressing. You know, what are we going to be? Yeah, absolutely. Again, like that identity piece, when we talk about the fact, like, what are our, what are our roles? There is no role that we as human beings have that becomes more consuming than the role of a parent, right? As a parent, like that is something where so much becomes defined by that caregiving and nurturing and support and everything that goes into parenting. And that moment where it's like, oh, wow, my child doesn't need me in the same way. And now I'm really looking at what that's going to mean in five years from now. That's a big, a big space to kind of cope, need to cope with the 
and acknowledge the loss and that, that it's hard to say, wow, like this is changing. But to also, again, like reconnect with what those values are and who am I as a human being apart from my role as a parent and my space as a parent and start to reconnect with that. And we encourage people, you know, I I don't want people to get lost in the future of like, oh gosh, in five years, my kids are going to be out of the house. But there is value in thinking about it before the moment that it happens. Because what we do know is that for parents who kind of don't really think about what life will look like after the kids are gone and then they're gone. And suddenly there's like an overwhelming feeling of what do I do now? How do I fill this space now? What am I connected to? What's important? What are my values? What are my hobbies, what is driving me, what's, you know, kind of getting me going now. It's important to think about that in advance because when it comes up for the first time when they're gone, that's when we see people really start to, to struggle to figure it out. So it can help to be thinking about it in advance while still making sure to take advantage of the wonderful, though complicated teenage years. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And that's why I created this podcast, because I think we we do need to we need to think about this now and prepare, but at the same time, have some sort of plan and not just all of a sudden say, oh, my God, here I am. What do I do? But I I think it's a very relevant topic to a lot of women. I actually last night was in a um, a support group for for parents of teens um, that I that I decided to join. I got something in my inbox and I said, oh, you know what, I'm going to do this. And it was so interesting to see every parent going through the same thing. Like my kid is in their room all day long and I don't know how to get them out. And I like I'm taking it personally and they don't want anything to do with me. And it's so relevant to what's happening in their lives right now. Oh, yeah. And I think that like that's one of the things that one of the wonderful things about support groups is that there's like value in shared suffering when we realize like it's not just our kid and we're not the only one going through it like that helps to know. And I think the other thing that's complicated, right, of the adolescent early teenage years, there's this very normal developmental stage that happens then where kids will, they, I think in mental health and development, they'll often talk about creating false selves, but where like, it's very normal that kids are kind of like trying on different selves. So it's the reason that they'll feel like, wow, they're one way with me. But then I see them like with another adult and they're this completely different charming, lovely person. And with me, they're this like angsty, you know, angry kid. And then at soccer practice, they're one way. And then when they're with this group of friends, they're another way. And, you know, you feel like, oh my God, why does it feel like my child has split into four different children with different personalities? And that's a normal part of development that then like they kind of seek feedback and then settles out more into like a singular identity. But I think it makes it even more complicated for for parents at that age, because you're like, I can't even wrap my head around, like you're in your room all the time. And when you come out, I'm not sure which version of you I'm going to get. And (laughs) um, that that becomes like really challenging as a parent, because you're trying to keep up with all those different false selves that kids are creating until they level out into their more more singular identity. I always try to say... um... Remember you were 13. Remember you were 13. <laughs> you know, like I try right. to I try to put my head back at that age and and as much as possible. And it sometimes that helps. But when I say it sneaks up on you, like I, I I'm still a teenager in my head. I can't like, how do I have a teenager? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think it does. It does really creep up on people. And it is that, you know, I think it is important to say, okay, like can I found, find value in this? Just like as you said, just like maybe I didn't love the toddlers 
stage. There is stuff about this that I will look back fondly on and, you know, be nostalgic about in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, it's it's when, when my daughter went to middle school, I got really nostalgic and I started finding all these old videos and pictures of her. And it was sort of when her her attitude was changing a little bit. And she's mm-hmm. a great kid. She's a great kid. But she, you know, she's normal. She's going through the all the stages. But I started playing like all, <laughs> all these baby videos for her. And I'm like, remember when you loved me? Remember, <laughs> remember when you were you're so cute. <laughs> yeah, it's like that personal reassurance. Like, wait a minute. She did used to really, really want to spend time with me. She used to like want to, you know, follow me around the house all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course I probably was complaining about that back then too. But <laughs> oh my gosh, right. Like you're like, I just need some alone time. <laughs> yes. The other topic, the last Last topic I wanted to, I could talk to you all day long, and I'm sure we're going to have so many follow-up questions from this podcast, and I'd love to have you back again. The last question I think um, a lot of people always are asking is supporting somebody who is grieving, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, what to say, what not to say. I mean, I had a year where two of my very good friends, one lost her husband suddenly and one lost her daughter, having not experienced either of those things thankfully uh, it was it's difficult to 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 even know what the hell to do or say and and unfortunately we're seeing things happening more and more i mean i i i i have friends who have lost friends to cancer i had a high school friend uh, a few few years ago who died suddenly um you know so th- it it's happening we're still young but it, yeah. but it's happening and what what do we say what do we do what do we not do that's that's probably my bigger question yeah and actually i think you know what what we saying what we d- don't do is probably a little bit easier than what we what what we do because what we do is more based on those personal relationships and knowing that person and their loss and their needs and their style but i think in terms of what we don't do, or one of our biggest tips is really in terms of reframing your thinking is we always say like the biggest thing to remember is you're not there to provide comfort. You're there to provide support. And I think the difference between comfort and support, you know, comfort is when we want to make someone feel better. And the reality after a, a devastating loss is what people often need is not for some, you can't fix it. You can't make them feel better. You're not going to have some sort of magic words that are going to make this moment feel any less devastating than it is. What we want is people who can be present with that pain that we're going through, not minimize it, know that no matter how ugly it is and messy it is, no matter how much we're struggling to feel like there, that person is going to be there for support. And I think that that, when we like reframe that in many ways, it can be a big relief that like your job is not to find the right words because there are no right words. So I think what we often say to avoid and the things that come out of comfort language that are like the big no-nos, oftentimes, like anytime you're about to start a sentence with at least, or like the, that idea of at least is like just stop because people will often want to be like, well, you know, at at least he's not suffering anymore. At least he lived a long life. At least you can have other kids. At least, you know, there's this like want to find some kind of weird silver lining or like sugarcoat a situation, um, which is a huge absolute no, no, because all of those things might 
be true, you might in fact hear the other person say them, in which case, of course, it's okay to follow their lead. But to try to find that silver lining for another person, there is nothing that makes people more angry. Yeah, uh, I know those kinds of, of comments. And I think going back to your example of your home and feeling like you didn't get empathy from people when you had experienced this devastating loss in your own home with, with the flooding and all the work that had gone into it. Right. I, I imagine there was probably a lot of that, like, well, at least you weren't one of the houses that got damaged even more or lost everything. At least you can repair. Like it's that feeling. That's what I got. That, yes. That I, people. I, yeah. Yeah. They're not like seeing, they're not seeing what's happening and what you're experiencing and your pain when they're comparing it to someone else and, or comparing it to what could be quote unquote worse and minimizing it. So I think that's like our, often our, our number one tip is don't do that. I just want to add into that, that, that it wasn't like, oh, my decorating was damaged. It was like the baby books I lost and all the things I, and all the, all the, uh, you know, important things you know, if, whether we had furniture from family or we had personal items and my office was destroyed and my kids, you know, their home was destroyed and we were gone oh, for a year. Yeah. So, so I just want to make it clear that I wasn't like, oh, my decorating was ruined. Yes. Those were, those were the lot of the responses that we got. Well, at least you have the money to rebuild. Well, at least you have, you know, at least you're all okay. At least da, 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 da. And you just want to slam someone. Like, can you just yeah. say, just say this sucks. This just sucks. say this absolutely <laughs> sucks. Exactly. This is absolutely like the worst thing ever. And I think that that w- when we like think about how that can translate into so many different things and it's often well-intentioned, like people are trying to find, they're like, I don't want to see you in this unhappy slump. And it's like, no, I, I, I deserve to be in an unhappy slump for a little while. And what I need is to know that you can be right here with me in that slump. And like, it doesn't mean I'm not going to push forward. It means I'm allowed to feel my feelings about just how devastating and awful this situation is. So I, I think that is huge. I think then being able to say to people, you're going to be there for support and mean it, right? And and that is the trickiest part. I think lots of people will say, I'm here if you need me. I'm here, you know, let me know what you need. All of those sort of kind of often sound like empty promises. And many people will say, people were there for me for three weeks and then everyone disappeared. So I think with that often being really concrete and specific, lots of times people who are grieving are like, everybody's saying, let me know what you need and I have no idea what I need. So trying to come up with specific suggestions of being able to say like, hey, I can take your kids to school every day for the next indefinitely. I can do this for you. I can do your grocery shopping for you. I can do, you know, coming up with things realistically that you can offer to people can sometimes be helpful. Often they really don't know what they need. And then if they're, they haven't taken you up, keep continuing to check in. And I, with my friends, one of the things that I will tell people is I'm going to check up on you twice a week. I'm going to check in about what you need, what I can do, making offers, you know, seeing if you want to grab coffee, whatever, until you to tell me to like, stop. (laughs) And I think that sometimes we have this idea of like, maybe they need space. Maybe I need to, you know, give them a little bit of time, give them a little bit of distance. Maybe they do need that, but let them tell you that. Don't assume that that's what they need. Because many times people feel the opposite, which is everybody 
abandoned me. Everybody kind of disappeared. Everybody said they would be there and then they weren't. So I would always recommend over offering to under offering and then you know, be really clear that they can tell you to back off if they want you to back off. It can be really, really helpful. The the one other thing, this is really interesting. I, because we were just taught, it just came up on um, our Instagram and we, I think you were talking about some unexpected losses or just at, you know, our age when we're losing, when people are younger than expected. One thing that came up that people, I was just like over, we had like hundreds of responses to this in a couple of hours when it came up was people asking how someone died if they haven't chosen to share it. And I think that when someone, a lot of the feedback that we had from widows and also from a lot of moms who had lost children was that when people find out that they their husband has died or their child has died, that oftentimes people's first go-to question will be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. How did it happen? Or how did they die? What did they have? Like, th- rather than thinking, if we're going to ask a, pers- a question about the person, we should ask about their life, not about their death. But for whatever reason, sometimes there's like this knee jerk people have to ask about their death. And oftentimes it's really triggering. Even if that person, and a lot of times people will think, oh, well, it's only triggering if it was a suicide or an overdose or an accident. But you know, for many people, just having to say out loud and talk about the illness that their loved one has immediately in that moment brings up memories, images, you know, all that about the illness and the death which is often the hardest thing. Whereas being able to ask questions like, oh, what was your husband's name? What did he do? You know, questions about his life are often going to be the things that bring back, though they'll be hard to talk about, will bring back the positive memories. They're the things that people like to talk about, about the memory of their loved one, not the, you know, things that they, they don't want to talk about. So that one just came up on Instagram like last week. So it's really front and center on the brain for me because it's one that I don't, think about as often as some of the other ones. That's so wonderful and such great advice. I I don't think I would have known to do that. I'm definitely guilty of doing that, of asking that, not out of being nosy, but just, I don't know, it it always puts the other person in a position like, oh boy, this is an awkward conversation. What do I do next? So I love that advice. That's so great. I don't want to end, but I think we're going to have to finish up a little bit. I want you to let the listeners know uh, where they can find you. I I did already mention your bio, kind of what you do, but um, if somebody is grieving and if it's something, it's not, you're not just grieving a death, you're grieving anything in your lives. How do they find you and what kind of support can they seek? So um, you can find us on our website, which is whatsyourgrief.com. And we have hundreds of articles there. I think six or 700 articles on all things related to grief that you could ever imagine. Um, And We also do regular webinars. We have online courses. We do a lot with using creative expression as a tool for coping with grief. So we have classes like uh, journaling, grief journaling, using photography as a tool for exploring and coping with loss. We have some support on getting ready for the holiday season, which for I think many people, this holiday season is going to be 
especially tricky and holidays are always tricky when we're grieving. So specific support like that, we have a podcast as well. It's a little sporadic. We um, we started our podcast in 2014 when podcasting was still like the wild, wild west and standards were very, very low. Um, so like we just podcast here and there. It's I always tell people like you'll get really good information. You'll get really low quality. So we have all that. You can find us anywhere on social media um, at What's Your Grief. So we're on... not anywhere. We're not on Snapchat or TikTok, but we're on Instagram, Pinterest, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. Great. Thank you so much. This was, this was another therapeutic session that I had. <laughs> and I hope for everybody else, uh, there, there was so much to take from this. So I appreciate you coming on the show. If you don't mind uh, follow-up questions from this, I'll, I'll forward them your way. Or um, if there's a better way for you to be reached, uh, happy to do that as well. But I usually do get a bunch of questions. Please do feel free to share. And I will, um, we have some great resources on what to say and what not to say and what to do and what not to do. So I will make sure to send those your way as well if they'd be helpful for folks. Okay, great. And I will link um, uh, to your website and any information in the show notes as well as my website. So thank you to um, Litsa and thank you to my listeners uh, for listening yet again to another one of my episodes and hope to bring you some more of this and other helpful ideas going forward that can make this part of our lives more positive and we're able to work through so that our future is something that we're looking forward to and not dreading, not, not grieving. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Remember to give yourself permission and know that you are not alone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reviews are always appreciated. And you can reach me by email at it's not a crisis at Gmail, Instagram, it's not a crisis podcast, and please join our Facebook group as well. Until next time, just remember, it's not a crisis. It's not a crisis.